church. Nice to see you. My name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. Excited that you're with us in this ongoing study of John. And uh, as I've said before, if you're a guest or if you haven't been with us in a while, uh, there is a, a copy of the Gospel of John that we, we bought for you. We want to make sure everybody gets their copy. You might go, why do I need that? It's actually got journaling pages in it. And so as a family during this season, we sort of committed to be, um, to be studying John together and kind of responding through writing in a journal about what God is saying to us. So if you haven't gotten that yet, we'd love for you to grab them. You can grab them in the lobby on your way out today or at the connections counter or whatever. Last week, uh, we were at the beginning of John 5, and this picks up seamlessly. In fact, what we'll see here, speaking of long speeches or whatever, uh, this is the first of Jesus's lengthy discourses in the book of John. We've seen him interacting with people. We've seen him have sort of short interactions. But here at the end of John 5 is the first sort of long sermon we see from Jesus. And it's uh, it's theologically deep. It's a little bit uh, tangly. We're going to do our best to sort of untangle it. I think there, it's, it's absolutely possible to see clarity in this. Jesus is uh, articulating something very profound. There's deep stuff we want to pull out of this, but it's all prompted by his interaction uh, that we saw last week at at the beginning of John 5. Remember, Jesus had traveled to Jerusalem. He goes to these pools at Bethesda where there were all kinds of sick people and those who were unable to walk and those who were blind. And Jesus sees a man there who had been uh, lame for 38 years, unable to walk. And he commands the man, get up, take your mat, and, and go, right, and leave. And um, then the Jews in the area got frustrated. And that we said last week, they were so focused on the mat that they couldn't see the miracle, right? They are not mad that Jesus healed this man. And in fact, that's not their frustration at all. Their frustration is that the man picked up a mat and carried it because... While uh, Hebrew law said that everyone was supposed to observe the Sabbath and was supposed to rest from their labors, uh, the Jewish people had sort of added some of their own, you know, appendixes. They'd sort of added some additional rules. And one of their additional rules was you shouldn't, you shouldn't literally pick up your bed and carry it anywhere, right? So they look at this man whose legs had not worked for 38 years and they go, hey, why are you carrying your mat? That's against the law, right? That, and the guy goes, well, the guy who healed me told me to do it. And, and then uh, when they figure out that it's Jesus, Jesus responds to their frustration and he responds because of what they're frustrated about. In fact, it's interesting. Here where we're picking up today in verse 16, it says, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, for the record, Jesus hasn't done anything on the Sabbath except heal a man, right? What they were frustrated with was what the man did at the instruction of Jesus, but nonetheless, it's getting a little muddy here. They're mad because of what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath. They're nervous because he, he broke their restrictions, right? He violated their, uh, their Sabbath restriction. Jesus' response in 17 is, my father is working until now, and I am working. He uses the word work there on purpose, because their frustration is about his Sabbath work, the work he's doing on the Sabbath. So he goes, okay, you want to talk about work? Let's talk about work. My father is working until now, and I am working. And it says then following, uh, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. It's kind of a funny response of Jesus. And in fact, it's sort of like he looks at them and goes, oh, I hear you're frustrated about my Sabbath violation. I'm going to see your Sabbath violation and I'm going to raise you a blasphemy, right? I'm going to raise you a blasphemy. You, you were mad because a dude carried a mat. Now I'm going qua- to claim equality and uniformity with God. If you were frustrated before, you're really going to be frustrated now. It's essentially as if, a, you know, if, you're, if you ran a red light, right, and the cop pulls you over and he comes up to the side door and he goes, hey, 
You know, you just ran a red light. It, it would be like if you looked at the cop at that point and said, yeah, I ran the red light. I'm in a hurry. I got a dead body in the trunk. Can I get out of here, right? I want to go somewhere. He'd be like, well, I don't even care about the red light anymore. You just made this 20 times worse, right? Jesus looks at them and he says, my father is working and so I am working. And you might look at that and go, well, I don't understand the implication. The rabbis taught and believed that God does not necessarily explicitly observe a Sabbath rest, Right? While we have all been called to rest and, and take a Sabbath from our labors, uh, the, the rabbis would look and they would say, well, you know what, God doesn't, God, God doesn't observe the Sabbath the same way we do. Because on the Sabbath, there are still babies being born and there are still people dying, which God is the author of. So the rabbis believed and they taught that God rests generally, but that he's always working in, t- in two specific areas. That God continues, even on the Sabbath, to give life in the form of new children being born, right? And that God continues to render judgment in the fact that people would die. And so there was this sort of common understanding that that was permitted for, it was a kind of an exception made of God because he's God, that even though it's the Sabbath, he still provides life and he still renders judgment. Jesus looks at these Jews who are accusing him of doing something on the Sabbath, and he says to them, we all sort of agree in common that God works on the Sabbath. My father works on the Sabbath. Well, so do I, right? And what he's claiming here, just to be clear, it says that they want to kill him because he claims equality with God. I'd like to take that one step further. What we see in this discourse is not Jesus claiming equality with God, right? This isn't Jesus going, there is a God and I'm equal with him. There is a God, I'm also a God, and we are both powerful. It's not him saying, I'm an additional God or an extra God who has similar power to the God you believe in. This isn't Jesus claiming equality with God. This is Jesus claiming uniformity with God, synonymity with God. This is, God, this is Jesus saying, God and I are one. We are the same. You look at the Father and say, well, he still provides life and renders judgment. These are the very same things that I'm doing, not because I'm like God, but because I am God, right? It's uniformity that he's claiming. And they become very frustrated with him. It says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal. He was saying the the exception that you make for God to work on the Sabbath applies to me because I also am God. And what we'll see in this discord is he's going to make three main claims, right? We can boil it down into three main claims, and all of them align with these permissions that the people already attributed to God on the Sabbath. He's going to claim himself to be a provider of life. He's going to claim himself to be a presiding judge. And he's going to claim himself to be the praiseworthy God, very God. He's going to equate and and in uniformity align himself with the person of God here. And it's not that Jesus is trying to infuriate them, It's not that he's trying to enrage them. It's not that he's trying to provoke a fight in them. We want to remember as we sort of looked at the whole gospel of John, as we've been walking through, Jesus' goal is always to look through the sort of temporal issue to the greater spiritual need. And Jesus in this discourse is trying to sort of grab their chins and take their eyes off of whatever it's been focused on. Their silly Sabbath laws or their own sort of pride, their own desire for the praise of men. He's trying to take their attention off of themselves and focus their attention on himself. And let me say this, we'll pause just for a second. The, The discourse that Jesus gives here, the sermon that Jesus preaches in this particular case is incredibly relevant to each and every one of us. 
Because in the same ways that these Jewish people sort of got sidetracked and distracted by things and misunderstood at a very fundamental level exactly who Jesus was, you and I tend to fall into this very same trap. We fall into the same trap of not seeing Jesus fully for who he is or not understanding with real depth exactly what it is that he does or what his purposes are. And if we don't understand Jesus, if we don't understand what he claims about himself here, we cannot possibly believe in him, right? And so Jesus is going to make a couple of claims. Let's look at it sort of in the section that follows. It says in 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. In those two sentences, Jesus is again sort of focusing them on the uniformity of the father and the son, Jesus with God. And he's saying, look, there's a a unity in direction. There's a unity in purpose. There's a unity in affection, right? There is this mutual love that we have for one another. There is a a dependence and a submission from the son to the father, but we are aligned in our goals and our purposes. We're even aligned in our pursuit of glory, right? He says, God's gonna give these things that you would marvel. The father does these things in the son that you would marvel. We're gonna come back to that in a second. But here Jesus is stating unequivocally, like we are the same, united in all these things. We believe that God has this love and we believe that God has this purpose and that he takes these actions. And the son is absolutely uniform with the father in all of these things. And he's gonna give sort of specific examples. So let's keep reading. 19 and 20. In 20 he says, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Verse 21, here he's talking about being the provider of life. He says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will, right? Everyone would have agreed that God was the giver of life. When babies are born, God is the provider of life. Now Jesus says, we all agree that God gives life. You need to understand that's what the son does as well. And he gives some specific examples a little bit further down. A little bit further down, but before we get there, I, w- I want you to read, if, actually, if you have the journal, I want you to underline something here in 21. It says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life, underline this, to whom he will. It's really important for us who are trying to understand who this Jesus is, to understand what he's called us to, to understand that this life that he gives, this life that he gives, he gives according to his will, according to his whim according to his power. It's not something that he's sort of contractually obligated to give. And it's also not something that can be found anywhere else. The life, the spiritual life that you and I need can't be found in self-help books. It can't be found in organizations. It can't be found in spiritual gurus. It can't be found anywhere except in Jesus. The life that we need and the life that he gives comes according to his will and only according to his will. And and that's sort of a point of contention in our world today, right? Because there are a lot of people who would look at Jesus and they would go, well, you know, that's, that's one way to eternal life or that's one way to resurrection life or that's one way to bliss or peace or eternity or whatever. Jesus says, no, the father gives life and I give life and it's distributed according to my Will. It's according, I, I give that life according to whom, whom I will. Jesus puts himself at the center of our faith. He's not peripheral to that. He's not external to that. He is at the center. Because why? Because life comes through his will. And he, he gives four sort of key ways that this life comes. Jump down with me, if you will, to verse 25. 
First he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The first way in which he demonstrates that he's the provider of life is by saying, look, the hour has come right here. He's looking at a crowd of people and he says, those in this crowd who are spiritually dead, who hear my voice and believe can have spiritual life now. Spiritual life in the moment. In fact, if we back up to 24, here's another thing to underline. In 24, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. I want you to underline the word has. Because that word has, he says, if you hear my word and you believe me, when when does that eternal life come? Is it something that comes when your heart stops beating someday or when you get into a fatal car crash or you grow old and you die of old age? No, eternal life is something that happens immediately. I think sometimes we sort of think about the goal of our entire faith as being to affect some sort of change in the afterlife, right? We think, well, you follow Jesus or you come to church or you do this religious stuff, whatever that is, and what that means is that someday when you die, you'll have eternal life. Jesus refutes that here, right? Jesus is talking about life now. Whoever hears and believes has eternal life, has, has eternal life in the present tense. So the first thing Jesus says then in 25 about the life he gives is that those in the crowd who are spiritually dead, who hear and believe, can be made spiritually alive. What's he talking about? Well, he's not just talking about physical death. He's not just talking about that point where your heart stops beating and your lungs quit working. He's establishing and sort of reiterating the concept that all of us, all of mankind, is spiritually dead apart from Christ. In John 10, which we'll come to in a few weeks, in John 10, he says, the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that they may have life. And the implication or the indication is that apart from the coming of Jesus, creation and and created beings do not have life in themselves. He sees his mission as a life-giving mission. That's why in John 1, it says of Jesus, the incarnate word, in him was life, and that life was the light of men, right? Jesus says to the crowd, anyone in the crowd who is dead and hears my voice can be made alive, spiritual life. And the same thing that was true for that crowd is true for every crowd since. It's true for the crowd this morning. If you're here this morning, and as it says in Psalms 5, you're separated from God, separated from God because of your sin. There is no reason to remain in that position a moment longer because in Christ, resurrection life can be yours now. He says, those who hear, the dead who hear, we raise to life. Not only is he talking about resurrection of the spiritually dead in that literal crowd, look at 26. He says, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. This is a reference back to what I just quoted in John 1, but he's talking about the resurrection life that is sort of synonymous with who Jesus is. When we think about Easter, which we'll celebrate in a couple of months, Jesus walks out of the tomb, right? He had come to the earth. He took the sins of mankind upon himself. He died in our place as a sacrifice on our behalf and shed his blood and was buried dead, but he didn't stay that way. No, he walked out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, resurrected, and by his grace, he has the ability then to extend that same resurrection life. How does he do that? Because life is in him. So he not only talks about the ability to raise the spiritually dead who are listening to his sermon, but he also talks about the resurrection that is part and parcel of who he is, right? The life that's in him. Not only that, keep reading. 
27, he talks about judgment. We'll come to that in a second. He says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. 28, listen to this about the the provision of life. He says in 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those uh, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I want you to just kind of let your brain wrap around this for a second. Again, sometimes we think about our faith or we think about religion as being the difference between living forever and not living forever. But what Jesus is saying here is all of us are eternal beings. That everyone created in the image of God, black, white, young, old, rich, poor, it doesn't matter who you are, all of us are created in the image of God as eternal beings. We will all exist for eternity. But the difference is, will we exist in eternal judgment or we will, will we exist in eternal uh, redemption? Will we exist in the presence of God and in his joy? Jesus says, not only can the crowd who is spiritually dead hear my voice and be raised to life, but the people who've already been buried and dead, those who are in the tomb, there is a day coming when they will hear my voice and they will all come out. Those who have done good, right, to resurrection life and those who have done evil to condemnation or to judgment, Right? Now, when we talk about good and evil here, he's not saying that it has to do with whether or not you've, you know, walked a bunch of old ladies across the street or whether you've said your prayers or whether you, you know, contributed enough money to charitable organizations. The definition of scripture, not only according to this passage, but many others, according to scripture, the definition of doing good is believing in the one that God has sent. So Jesus says there's a day coming when those who are in the tombs will come out and those who have done good, a.k.a. those who have believed in the only Son of God will be raised to resurrection life, to eternal life with God. Those who have done bad, a.k.a. the rejection of the Son of God. It says in John 3, 17 and 18, right, that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the one and only Son of God that everyone will be raised to some kind of eternity. And it's either eternity in the presence of God or eternity separated from him. Jesus says, I have life in me. I have life in me. I am the provider of life. My father is working. He's the provider of life, and so am I. I can raise the spiritually dead in this crowd. I have spiritual life within me, and ultimately those who are in the tombs will come out, and they will be raised to some sort of eternity as well. Not only does Jesus identify himself as the provider of life, but jump back up to 22, he talks about himself as a presiding judge. Remember, they believed that that God the Father didn't rest on the Sabbath from giving life or rendering judgment. Now Jesus puts himself in that category as well. In 22, he says, for the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. The Father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son. Well, you might at first go, well, that... It feels like there's a contradiction here. We were just studying John 3 a couple of weeks ago, and in John 3, which I, I poorly quoted a second ago, but let me, let me quote it to you exactly here. John three sixteen and following says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So here in John 5, 22, when Jesus, Jesus says the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, you might look at that and go, what, what does this mean? It says in 3, he doesn't condemn anybody, right? He didn't come for condemnation. And here it says all judgment has been given to him. 
Remember that what Jesus is trying to identify is, is not necessarily their individual functions, but their uniformity in function. When we take the totality of Scripture, we see that God, in fact, God the Father does preside as a judge, that he is a lawgiver and a ruler, that he does judge the earth, right? So it's not saying that, that God the Father, you know, sort of absconds his responsibility, but what's he saying? He's saying that in the person of Christ, there are two sides of the same coin. It says it really clearly in John three sixteen through 18, that those who believe will not perish, but have everlasting life, and those who do not believe remain spiritually dead. They remain in condemnation. And so Jesus is the historical pivot point for all men and women. Jesus and faith and belief in the saving work of Christ is the most important decision a man or woman will ever make because it is the, 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 the decision upon which all of us will be judged. Who do you say that he is? Again, in, in 24 of chapter five, John five twenty four says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus isn't a judge like you might imagine Judge Judy or Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Judge Wapner or whatever. It's not Jesus sitting behind a big desk with a gavel going, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, right? This is Jesus going, look at me and what I've done. I love you so much that I came to the earth and I took your sin upon myself and I died in your place and I want to give you by my grace. Resurrection life could be yours. And yet there are some, even some here Jesus is talking to, he he will say, who refuse to believe. Who refuse to believe. And for those who refuse to believe, judgment happens. They remain condemned, not because Jesus slammed the gavel down, but because they rejected what he put on offer. Jesus is the pivotal decision. Jesus is the pivot point of all human history. Jesus says, I'm the provider of life and I'm a presiding judge. He does so. It's interesting too. In 27, it says in verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And if your Bible is like mine, it's capitalized there. Son of man, that's a title. And it's a reference to a prophetic passage all the way back in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and following, there's this prophetic passage about the Messiah to come that uses that title. Jesus is referencing that here. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus says, I have judgment because I am that son of man. I have dominion over all things. The king and creator of the universe. Acts chapter 17 verses 30 and 31 say, the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What you say about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus is the most important consideration of every human mind and every human heart. Jesus is affirming here, I'm at the center. I'm not peripheral. I'm I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a good guy who came and gave some speeches. I am God, very God. And that brings us to the third claim in his sermon here in John chapter five. Not only does he say he's the provider of life, not only does he claim to be the presiding judge, but look at verse 23. In 22, it says, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son 
just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Let me tell you what, if you're a Jewish person in this crowd and you're listening to this speech and you're feeling agitated because he's just claimed to be one with the Father, he's claimed to be a provider of life and a presiding judge, you're thinking, this doesn't, this doesn't sound good. At this moment, you're actually looking for rocks to kill the guy giving the speech, right? Because what, what Jesus says now is that the Father is working to give honor to me And in fact, it is impossible for you to honor the Father if you don't honor me. That's a a big deal. I mean, this is a blasphemous statement if Jesus is not God, very God. Because God is very explicit and clear. Uh, You take a passage like Isaiah 42, where God says, I am the Lord, and I will not share my glory with another. Right? I will not share my glory. God doesn't work to glorify someone else. So the very fact that Jesus says the Father is working to honor me, he's already said in the text, he will give me works greater than these that you would honor me. The fact that he is now claiming that the Father is actively working to glorify the Son and that in glorifying the Son, he himself is glorified. I mean, he is saying without question and irrefutably, I am God. I am God. And if you don't honor me, you've missed God. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. What, what's he talking about here? What Jesus is making reference to is that it's not enough to be a person who says, yeah, I think there's a God. I think there's a creator. I think there's a cosmic force out there that keeps the earth spinning and that created dandelions and waterfalls and whatever. But I'm not sure about this Jesus, right? You know, I see these miracles and I see this other stuff and I go, ah, I don't really know about that. That empty tomb thing, I I don't really have time for that, but I I like God. You know, I I love God. I love God, but I'm not sure about Jesus. Jesus himself says that if you do not honor him, you've missed the point of God's work. And the failure to honor Christ is a failure to honor God himself. Why? Because they aren't equal. They're not similar. They are the same. They're the same. They're one, uniform. So here Jesus claims to be praiseworthy. He claims to be the praiseworthy God, very God. If Christ is not honored, God is not honored. And then he gives witnesses to this truth, right? So he's made these claims. They were mad about the guy taking up the mat. He goes, oh, you, don't, you think you're mad about that? Let me tell you what. The Father and I are the same. I provide life. I am a presiding judge. And I'm a praiseworthy God of the universe. Your Father is absolutely working to honor me and wants you to honor me. And then he gives witnesses, almost like calling, calling people to witness in a court, right? He gives several, right, right in rapid succession. Jump down with me, if you will, back to John chapter 5. He gives these witnesses. Look at what it says in verse 30 and following. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. If I'm just some guy sort of spouting out these ideas, then you have reason to suspect me or to be nervous about me. But that's not what's happening here. He says, let me, let me give you a couple of examples. He says in 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John the Baptist was testifying to the truth that I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, right? What's Jesus saying? Like, you remember John the Baptist? That was just a couple months ago. And everybody was all excited because here's John the Baptist, and he's declaring, hey, the Messiah's coming, the Lamb of God's coming. And now here I am, but you won't take John the Baptist's testimony because you've turned on him as well, Right? When he called you to repentance and he, and he pointed to me, you went, all right, that's it. We're done with John the Baptist. But that was a guy you were excited about for a while. He points to the testimony of John the Baptist. Not only that witness, but look at this in 37. The father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He talks about the father as a witness, Right? He says, the Father has testified to these things, these truths about who I am. It says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. When Jesus says the father has testified about me as well, not just John the Baptist, but the father, he, he is both referring to the testimony of God at his baptism, but more importantly, he's referring to the testimony of God within us all. First John says that God puts his testimony in us to believe. Jesus will say, no one can come to me unless the father draws them, Right? So he says, there's the witness of John the Baptist. There's the witness of my father. I, I skipped one here, but if we back up uh, just, a, just a verse to, uh, if we back up to 20, excuse me, 36. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the father has sent me. John the Baptist is a witness. The father is a witness. And he says, my works, my, my miracles are a witness about me. I'm doing these things among you, these signs and wonders, and you're not connecting them to the fact that they are the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 35, verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We can look at Messianic prophecy, and we can go, it says specifically that people who were lame will leap for joy like deer. But all you can see is the mat. All you can see is the mat that guy is carrying. You're not paying attention to the fact that that work is a testimony. That miracle is a testimony about who I am. The provision of life, the presiding judge, and the praiseworthy God. He says, the Father testifies about me. My miracles testify about me. John the Baptist testified about me. We can continue on here. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I did not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you've set your hope. Two last witnesses, the witness of scripture. He looks at these Jewish people and he says, you search the scriptures intently. You take pride in your searching of the scriptures and yet the scriptures declare the truth of who I am. Not only that, there is a day coming when Moses, the one that you think of as your hero, your champion, the Jewish people thought of Moses as their advocate before God. That Moses was declaring on their behalf before the throne of God. Now here Jesus says, you think Moses is your advocate? 
There is a day coming when you will stand before my father and Moses isn't going to advocate for you. He will accuse you because he himself pointed at me in Deuteronomy, right? Now my miracles testify. John the Baptist testified. My father testifies. The scriptures testify. Moses himself testifies to the truth of me. And yet, as he says here in verse 40, you refuse to come to me. Why? Well, you'll also see in the sermon, and we're almost done, you'll also see in the sermon the reason why they refuse to come to him. He declares very clearly in these verses his motivation. Look at verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, my motivation is not my own power. It's not my own wealth. It's not my own reputation. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to build a kingdom just for me. I'm working on behalf of God, who I'm uniform with. But then he, he sort of juxtaposes that with them. Look further down in 43 and 44. He says, I have come in my father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He looks at them and he says, the reason, despite all the witnesses and all the things that testify to the truth that I am a provider of life and a presiding judge and a praiseworthy God, very God, despite all of the testimony on my behalf, you refuse to believe. Why? Because you care more about the glory that comes from man than you do about the glory of God. Because you care more about what people think or what people will say. You care more about your own little kingdoms than you do about the kingdom of God. And he says, if you would believe in me, you could have resurrection life. But if you refuse me, the condemnation will remain on you. He says in 47, but if you do not believe, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I'm saying these things to you and you won't believe. The whole discourse sort of pivots on verse 24 and we'll read it one more time. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. I think the question for us this morning when we come to an incredible sermon like this, I, I know it's deep and sort of, it feels a little convoluted, but there's great clarity in it about who Jesus is. There's a great refutation of many things people say about Jesus. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just, just a guy who got killed before his time. He's not just a moral leader. He's the giver of life. He's the one upon whom all judgment rests. Because in your, in your evaluation and your understanding and your belief of him, resurrection life hangs in the balance there. The question for us this morning is, do you believe? Because Jesus doesn't say that resurrection life is dependent upon how you feel. He doesn't say if you've had a great experience of me or if there were moments where you were deeply moved. He doesn't say if you can answer all the right questions on the Bible quiz then you can have resurrection life. He doesn't look and say, hey, if you come from a Christian family or you come from a Christian neighborhood or if you memorize a lot of Bible verses or you walk a lot of old ladies across the street or whatever, what's the key here? He says the key is you hear my word and believe it. The question for us this morning, church, is do you believe in this Jesus? Do you believe in him? Because if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in him, there are two things. One's heavy to hear, and I'll just admit that. One of the things that's heavy to hear is that if you've never put your faith in Jesus as the provider of life, as the presiding judge, and as God, very God, worthy of our praise, if you've never believed in him, then according to the scripture, you're still spiritually dead right where you sit. And you might go, well, that's kind of rude to say. I get it, right? But the thing I would follow that up with immediately is to say there is no reason for you to remain in that position. There is no reason for you to remain spiritually dead because by the grace of God, he extends to each who will believe resurrection life. 
There isn't a reason why any human soul in this place should walk out of this room having not claimed that beautiful gift of life from the Lord Jesus. And so I want you to listen to the witnesses. Listen to John the Baptist. Listen to the witness of the Father within you. Listen to what the scriptures have said. Listen to the testimony of the ages. Look at the miracles of Christ. And don't set them aside, but look at what they point to. They point to the fact that God isn't, excuse me, Jesus isn't like God. He is God. And he loves you, and he knows you. And he wants to raise you from death to life. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I just want to give you a moment before we close to cry out to God in the quietness of your own heart. In a room this size with the, the, the number of people that are here, I know for a fact that there are some of you who've never believed in Jesus. You might be, you, maybe you've been really close to him. You know a lot of people who've believed in him. Maybe you sort of intellectually understand who he is, but you've never trusted him for life. And so in the quietness of this moment, I, I would invite you just to cry out to him. There's, no, there's not like a magic prayer. There's nothing you need to repeat after me. It literally is the cry of your heart to say to God, Jesus, I believe in you. Will you save me from sin and death? I hear your word and I believe in you. Will you make me new? And we believe that, that whoever hears this word and believes not will have eternal life, not gets it someday, but that you can be made spiritually new right where you sit. God, I pray that you would draw those in this place who've never trusted in you to a saving knowledge of who you are, that they would look at your face, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't be drawn by the praises of men or the glory of themselves or their own agendas, but God, they would seek to honor you and the truth of who Jesus is. And for the rest of us who are here this morning, some who've put their faith in Christ, God, I pray that you would give us courage and wisdom to be advocates and ambassadors of your truth, that we would continue to carry these beautiful, theologically deep ideas, that we wouldn't dumb down the gospel, that we wouldn't round off the corners, but that we would declare the truth of your love and grace and justice and mercy as clearly as you've articulated it here. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.